Section 23 of the Complete Works of Tacitus Edited by Thomas Gordon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Lizzie Driver The Complete Works of Tacitus To which are prefixed political discourses upon that author. Edited and translated by Thomas Gordon with introductory essays by Thomas Gordon. Volume 1 The Annals, Book 2, Part 5 The African Conflicts About this time Tiberius finished and consecrated what Augustus began, the temples of the gods consumed by age or fire. That near the great circus, vowed by Ullus Posumius, the dictator, to Bacchus, Proserpina, and Ceres, in the same place the temple of Flora, founded by Lucius Publicius, and Marcus Publicius, while they were aediles, the temple of Janus, built in the herb-market, by Caius Duilius, who first signalized the Roman power at sea, and merited a naval triumph over the Carthaginians. That of Hope was dedicated by Germanicus, this temple Attilius had vowed in the same war, the law of violated majesty, in the meantime, waxed intense, and by it an accuser impleaded Apulia Virilia, grand-niece to Augustus, by his sister. For that, with opprobrious words, she had revived the defied Augustus, Tiberius, and his mother. And, being nearly allied to the emperor, had stained by adultery the Caesarian blood. Concerning the adultery, sufficient provision was thought already made by the Julian law, and the crimes of state, Tiberius desired, might be separated. If she had uttered impious speeches of Augustus, she must be condemned. But, for invectives against himself, he would not have called her to any account. The council asked him, What would be his sentiments if she were convicted of defaming his mother? To this he made no answer, but, next sitting of the Senate, he prayed too in her name, that no word spoken against her might to any one be imputed for crimes, and acquitted Apulia of her treason. Of her punishment too for adultery, he begged a mitigation, and prevailed that, by the example of our ancestors, she should be removed by a kindred two hundred miles from Rome. Manlius, her adulterer, was interdirected Italy and Africa. A debate at this time arose about substituting a praetor in the room of Ipsanius Gallus, removed by death. Germanicus and Drusus, for they were yet at Rome, espoused Heterius Agrippa, kinsman to Germanicus. Many, on the contrary, insisted that the number of children should decide it, and the candidate who had most be preferred, for this was the voice of the law. Tiberius rejoiced to see the Senate engaged in a contention between his sons and the laws. The law, without doubt, was vanquished, yet not instantly, and by a small majority, but with the same struggle that laws were vanquished when laws were in force. This year a war began in Africa. 
conducted by Tacforinus. He was a native of Numidia, and had served amongst the auxiliaries in the Roman armies, but, deserting the service, gathered together, by the allurements of booty and rapine, at first a herd of vagabonds and men inured to robberies, then formed them, like an army, into regular companies of foot and troops of horse, under distinct standards and colours. At length he was no longer esteemed the leader of a disorderly gang, but considered as general of the Musulanians. This powerful people, borderers upon the deserts of Africa, still wild and without towns, took arms, and drew into the war the neighbouring moors. These two had a general of their own, his name Mazippa, and between the two leaders the army was divided. That, whilst Tacforinus encamped with the best men, armed after the fashions of Romans, and accustomed then to discipline and command, Mazippa, with a flying band, might make excursions on every side, with fire, slaughter, and alarms. They had likewise forced the Sinatheans into their measures, a nation no wise despicable. When furious Camilleus, proconsul of Africa, marched against the enemy with one legion, and what troops of the allies were under his command, a handful of men at most, when compared to the multitude of Numidians and Moors. But it was his first care not to intimidate them with numbers, and thence tempt them to elude fighting and prolong the war. Indeed, he gave them hopes of victory, only to enable himself to vanquish them. The legion was placed in the centre, the light cohorts and two wings of horse on the right and left. Nor did Tacforinus decline the combat. The Numidians were routed, and, after a long series of years, military renown recovered to the name of Furius. For since Camillus, the restorer of Rome and his son, the glory of command and victories continued in other families. Even he whom I have mentioned, passed for a man destitute of military abilities and experience in war. Hence Tiberius magnified, with the more unfeigned alacrity, his exploits to the Senate, and to him the fathers decreed the ensigns of triumph. Yet to Camillus all the merit and distinction proved to snare, protected as he was by a life singularly modest and retired. The councils for the following year were Tiberius the third time, Germanicus the second. This dignity overtook Germanicus at Nicopolis, a city of Achaea, whither he arrived, by the coast of Illyricum, from visiting his brother Drusus, then abiding in Dalmatia, and had suffered a tempestuous passage, both in the Adriatic and Ionian Sea. He therefore spent a few days to repair his fleet, and viewed the while the Bay of Actium, renowned for the naval victory there, as also the spoils consecrated by Augustus, and the camp of Antony, with an affecting remembrance of Theses' ancestors. For Antony, as I have said, was his great-uncle, Augustus his father. Hence this scene proved to Germanicus a mighty source of images pleasing and sad. Next he proceeded to Athens, where, in concession to that ancient city, allied to Rome, he would use but one lictor. 
the Greeks received him with the most elaborate honours, and, to dignify their personal flattery, carried before him tabulators of the signal deeds and sayings of his ancestors. Hence he sailed to Eubosia, then to Lesbos, where Agrippina was delivered of Julia, who proved her last child. Then he kept the coast of Asia, and visited Perinthus and Byzantium, cities of Thrace, and entered the straits of Propontis, and the mouth of the Euxine, fond of beholding ancient places long celebrated by fame. He relieved, at the same time, the provinces were ever distracted with intestine factions, or aggravated with the oppressions of their magistrates. In return he strove to see the religious rites of the Samothracians, but, by the violence of the north wind, was repulsed from the shore as he passed. He saw Troy and her remains, venerable for the vicissitude of her fate, and for the birth of Rome. Regaining the coast of Asia, he pulled in at Colophon, to consult there the oracle of the Clarion Apollo. It is no Pythoness that represents the god here, as at Delphos, but a priest, one chosen from certain families, chiefly of Miletus. Neither requires he more than just to hear the names and numbers of the querists, and then descends into the oracular cave where, after a draught of water from a secret spring, though ignorant for the most part of letters and poetry, he yet utters his answers in verse, which has for its subject the conceptions and wishes of Cash Consultant. He was even said to have sung to Germanicus his hastening fate. But, as oracles are wont, in terms dark and doubtful. Now, Cineus Piso, hurrying to the execution of his purposes, terrified the city of Athens by a tempestuous entry, and reproached them in a severe speech, with the bleak censure of Germanicus, that, debasing the dignity of the Roman name, he had paid excessive court, not to the Athenians, by so many slaughterers long since extinct, but to the then mixed scum of nations there, for that these were they who had leagued with Mithridates against Scylla, and with Antony against Augustus. He even charged them with the errors and misfortunes of ancient Athens. Her impotent attempts against the Macedonians, her violence and ingratitude to her own citizens. He was also an enemy to their city from personal anger, because they would not pardon at his request one Theophilus, condemned by the Areopagus for forgery, from thence, sailing hastily through the Cyclades, and taking the shortest course, he overtook Germanicus at Rhodes, but was there driven by a sudden tempest upon the rocks. And Germanicus, who was not ignorant with what malignity and invectives he was pursued, yet acted with so much humanity, that, when he might have left him to perish, and referred to casualty the destruction of his enemy, he dispatched galleys to rescue him from the wreck. This generous kindness, however, assuaged not the animosity of Piso. Scarce could he brook a day's delay with Germanicus, but left him in haste to arrive in Syria before him. Nor was he sooner there and found himself amongst the legions than he began to court the common men by bounties and caresses, to assist them with his countenance and credit, 
to form factions, to remove all the ancient centurions, and every tribune of remarkable discipline and severity, and, in their places, to put dependents of his own, or men recommended only by their crimes. He permitted sloth in the camp, licentiousness in the towns, a rambling and disorderly soldiery, and carried the corruption so high, that in the discourses of the herd he was styled father of the legions. Nor did Plancina restrain herself to a conduct seemly in her sex, but frequented the exercises of the cavalry, and attended the decursions of the cohorts. Everywhere in weighing against Agrippina, everywhere against Germanicus, and some, even of the most deserving soldiers, became prompt to base obedience, from a rumour whispered abroad, that all this was not unacceptable to Tiberius. These doings were all known to Germanicus, but his more instant care was to visit Armenia, an inconstant and restless nation from the beginning, from the genius of the people, as well as from the situation of their country, which, bordering with a large frontier on our provinces, and stretching thence quite to Medea, is enclosed between the two great empires, and often at variance with them. With the Romans through antipathy and hatred, with the Parthians through competition and envy. At this time, and ever since the removal of Anonis, they had no king, but the affections of the nations leaned towards Zeno, son of Polmon, king of Pontus, because, by an attachment from his infancy, to the fashions and customs of the Armenians, by hunting, feasting, and other usages practised and renowned amongst the barbarians, he had equally won the nobles and people. Upon his head, therefore, at the city of Artaxeter, with the approbation of the nobles, in a great assembly, Germanicus put the regal diadem, and the Armenians, doing homage to their king, saluted him Artaxius, a name which from that of their city they gave him. The Cappadocians, at this time reduced into the form of a province, received for their governor Quintus Verenius, and to raise their hopes of the gentler dominion of Rome, several of the royal taxes were lessened. Quintus Servius was set over the Comagenians, then first subjected to the jurisdiction of a praetor. From the affairs of the allies, thus all successfully settled, Germanicus reaped no pleasure, through the perverseness and pride of Piso, who was ordered to lead, by himself or his son, part of the legions into Armenia, but contemptuously neglected to do either. They at last met at Syrium, the winter quarters of the Tenth Legion, whither each came with a prepared countenance. Piso to betray no fear, and Germanicus would not be thought to threaten. He was indeed, as I have observed, of a humane and reconcilable spirit, but officious friends, expert in flaming animosities, aggravated real offences, added fictitious, and with manifold imputations charged Piso, Placinia, and their sons. To this interview Germanicus admitted a few intimates, and began his complaints in such words as dissembled resentment usually dictates. Piso replied with disdainful submissions, 
and they parted in open enmity. Piso, hereafter, came rarely to the tribunal of Germanicus, or, if he did, sate sternly there, and in manifest opposition. He likewise published his spite at a feast of the Nabathean kings, where golden crowns of great weight were presented to Germanicus and Agrippania. But to Piso and the rest, such as were light. This banquet, he said, was made for the son of a Roman prince, not a Parthian monarch. With these words he cast away his crown, and uttered many invectives against luxury. Sharp insults upon Germanicus, yet he bore them. At this time arrived ambassadors from Aratabanus, king of the Parthians. He sent them to represent the state of the mutual league and friendship between the two empires. How desirous he was to renew it, that, in honour to Germanicus, he would come to receive him as far as the banks of the Euphrates, and requested, in the meantime, that Venones might not be continued in Syria, lest, taking the advantage of so near a neighbourhood, he should, by corresponding with the grandees of Parthia, engage in civil dissension and rebellion. The answer given by Germanicus, as far as related to the alliance of the Romans and the Parthians, was conceived in terms of dignity and grandeur. But of the coming of the king and the court in veneration intended to himself, he spoke with becoming complacence and modesty. Venones was removed to Pompeiopolis, a maritime city of Cilicia. A concession made, not to the request of Aratabanus only, but in contumely to Piso, with whom Venones was in high favour, for the assiduous court and many presents, by which he had won Plancina. In the consulship of Marcus Solanus and Lucius Norbanus, Germanicus travelled to Egypt, to view the famous antiquities of the country, though for the motives of the journey the care and inspection of the province were publicly alleged and indeed, by opening the granaries, he mitigated the price of corn, and practised many things grateful to the people. Walking without guards, his feet bare, and his habit the same with that of the Greeks, after the example of Publius Scipio, who, we are told, was constant in the same practices in Sicily, even during the rage of the Punic War there. For these he assumed manners and foreign habit, Tiberius blamed him in a gentle style, but censured him with great asperity for violating an establishment of Augustus, and entering Alexandria without consent of the prince. For Augustus, amongst other secrets of power, had set apart and appropriated Egypt, and restrained the senators and dignified Roman knights from going thither without license. As he apprehended that Italy might be distressed with famine, by any who seized that province, the key to the empire by sea and land, and defensible by a light band of men against potent armies. Germanicus, not yet informed that his journey was censured, sailed up the Nile. Beginning at Canopus, one of its mouths, built by the Spartans, as a monument to Canopus, a pilot buried there, at the time when Menelaus, returning to Greece, was driven to different seas in the Liberian continent. 
Hence he visited the next mouth of the river, sacred to Hercules. Him the natives aver to have been born amongst them, that he was the most ancient of the name, and that all the rest, who with equal virtues followed his example, were in honour called after him. Next he visited the mighty antiquities of ancient Thebes, where, upon huge obelisks, yet remained Egyptian characters, describing its former opulency. One of the oldest priests was ordered to interpret them. He said they related, that it once contained seven hundred thousand fighting men, that with that army King Ramesses had conquered Libya, Ethiopia, the Medes and Persians, the Bactrians and Scythians, and to his empire had added the territories of the Syrians, Armenians, and the neighbours the Cappadocians, a tract of countries reaching from the Sea of Bithania to that of Lycia. Here also was read the assessment of tribute laid on the several nations, what weight of silver and gold, what number of horses and arms, what ivory and perfumes as gift to the temples, what measures of grain, what quantities of all necessaries were by each people paid, revenues equally grand with those extracted by the domination of the Parthians, or by the power of the Romans. Germanicus was intent upon seeing other wonders. The chiefs were the effigies of Memnon, a colossus of stone, yielding, when struck by the solar rays, a vocal found. The pyramids rising, like mountains, amongst rolling and almost impassable waves of sand, proud monuments of the emulation and opulency of Egyptian kings. The artificial lake, a receptacle of the overflowing Nile, and elsewhere abysses of such immense death that those who tried could never fathom. Thence he proceeded to Elephantina and Siam, two islands, formerly frontiers of the Roman Empire, which is now widened to the Red Sea. While Germanicus spent this summer in several provinces, Drusus was sowing feuds among the Germans, and thence reaped no light reward. And, as the power from Arobidus was already broken, he engaged them to persist and complete his ruin. Amongst the Gatonis was a young man of quality. His name Catualda, a fugitive long since from the violence of Marbodoas, but now, in his distress, resolved on revenge. Hence, with a stout hand, he entered the borders of the Marcomannians, and, corrupting their chiefs into his alliance, stormed the regal palace and the castle situate near it. In the pillage were found the ancient stores of prey accumulated by the Suevians, as also many victuellers and traders from our provinces, men who were drawn hither from their several homes, first by privilege of traffic, then retained by a passion to multiply gain, and at last, through utter oblivion of their own country, fixed like natives in a hostile soil. To Merobidus, on every side forsaken, no other refuge remained but the mercy of Caesar. He therefore passed the Danube, where it washes the province of Norica, and wrote to Tiberius, not, however, in the language of a fugitive or supplicant, but with a spirit suitable to his late grandeur. 
that many nations invited him to them, as a king once so glorious, but he preferred to all the friendship, or Rome. The emperor answered, that in Italy he should have a safe and honourable retreat, and, when his affairs required his presence, the same security to return. But to the senate he declined, that never had Philip of Macedon been so terrible to the Athenians, nor Pyrrhus, nor Antiochus to the Roman people. The speech is extinct. In it he magnifies the greatness of the man, the fierceness and bravery of the nations his subjects, the alarming nearness of such an enemy to Italy, and his own artful measures to destroy him. Marobidus was kept at Ravenna, for a check and terror to the Swervians, as if, when at any time they grew turbulent, he were there in readiness to recover their subjugation. Yet in eighteen years he left not Italy, but grew old in exile there. His renown, too, became eminently diminished. Such was the price he paid for an overpassionate love of life. The same sate at Catualda, and no other sanctuary. He was soon after expulsed by the forces of the Hermandurians, led by Vibulius, and, being received under the Roman protection, was conveyed to Forum Julium, a colony in Narbonne, Gaul. The barbarians, their followers, lest had they been mixed with the provinces, they might have disturbed their present quiet, were placed beyond the Danube, between the rivers Marius and Corsus, and for their king had assigned them Vanius, by nation Aquadian. End of section 23